This week on Geek Explained, our Kingdom Hearts retrospective moves forward by going back in time with Kingdom Hearts Birth by Sleep. Explain the podcast for comics, film, TV, and more. You name it, we can explain it. I'm your host, Eric Azana, and today's episode is focused on Birth by Sleep. Kingdom Hearts has been a series on this uh, on this podcast that a lot of people seem to be enjoying. I've been enjoying uh, replaying through the games, uh, getting to share these stories with you, and you guys really seem to be enjoying listening to them. So, um, the next chapter in this story is Birth by Sleep, which is a sequel-prequel game. Um, It is the next chapter in the story, but it happens to take place ten years in the past. So, uh, this game, I remember coming out on the uh, PlayStation Portable. It was a fairly new system at the time that it came out, and there's a lot of hype around this game, and I was also very hyped about this game. Uh, I am. I was really excited to play it again for this series. Uh, and man, it took me a while. <laughs> um, I don't remember it being this long. Uh, I mean, granted, my October was uh, fairly busy. So I didn't have as much time to play through the game as I had for the previous games. But this game took me, I started first week of October, and it took me all the way until right around uh, the beginning of last week, which is the exact end of the month. And I was really stressed at a certain point that I wasn't going to be able to make it, but I did. I was able to complete all the uh, separate campaigns all on proud mode. Uh, I didn't want to do critical mode because I'm not a masochist. But did all that, got all the stuff for the secret ending, the uh, secret episode, the whole deal. So I was able to complete that game. I was able to finish that game in record time. Record not in... uh, the shortest record, but record as in um, almost a photo finish. And uh, I am here on this episode as the first week of November to give it to you. So we are going to jump into the background first, as we do with every Kingdom Hearts episode. Then we'll be going through the story. I'll be talking a little bit about the uh, final mix and 2.5 remix versions of the game at the end. And then stick around until the very end after that for uh, this episode's segment This Week in Comics. Uh, If you want to tell me about your experiences with Birth by Sleep, uh, whether it was the original game on the PSP or uh, the 2.5 Remix version, uh, or even the Final Mix version, I know we do have some 
uh, overseas listeners as well, hello. So uh, if you want to communicate that to me, or if you would like to uh, request or um, suggest other series on video games, on comics, on TV shows, on uh, whatever, feel free to reach out to me on Twitter at GeeksplainedPod. That's at GeeksplainedPod. Or you can also send me emails because I am an old man and I still read emails. Uh, you can send any of those to geeksplained at gmail.com. So I guess we will go ahead and jump right into the background of the story. Now, Kingdom Hearts Birth by Sleep is an action role-playing game uh, that was released originally on the PlayStation Portable. Uh, they began development for this game in June of 2005. And what's interesting about this is that the game was originally uh, supposed to be on the PlayStation 2, just like its predecessor, um, Kingdom Hearts 2 and Kingdom Hearts 1. Uh, and the protagonist was, again, going to be Sora. Uh, there's not a lot of information that I found in my research that would really explain what the story was supposed to be with Sora as the protagonist, but I think it's interesting thinking about what the story ended up being and kind of applying that to how Sora would be, I guess, leading the narrative, but uh, this game was developed by Square Enix's fifth development division. Uh, this is the same division that made uh, RE Chain of Memories, uh, they use the same graphical engine as Final Fantasy VII Crisis Core and uh, The City of Final Fantasy. Really all of the games in that kind of era. And the reason that this division specifically took on that game was because it requested it. During the development of, of uh, Kingdom Hearts 2, the 5th Division requested that if they did end up doing a spin-off of the game, that they would get the first crack at it. Now, Birth by Sleep was kind of in a set of spin-off games for this. This includes both uh, uh, Kingdom Hearts 3, 5, 8, Days Over 2, and uh, Coded, which we'll be talking about next month. But Fifth Division was given this game and given the important title. Uh, or the director uh, really sees this as the director of the whole thing. Uh, really sees this as episode zero. This is as important as Kingdom Hearts 1 and Kingdom Hearts 2. So they really wanted to put their best team behind it. Now, the game began development again on June 2005, but the development was ultimately paused to work on RE Chain of Memories. They wanted to get that out before uh, the other games, just so that they had that updated version. So once that was completed, they went back to it and decided that this was, instead of on the PlayStation 2, this game was going to be on the new PlayStation Portable that had recently come out. Uh, they really wanted to, as they were constructing this game, the story and the worlds behind it, they really wanted to put a focus on the Disney worlds that held the original uh, Seven Princesses of Heart. They wanted to expand on those stories, they wanted to expand on maybe how the events were set up to be uh, where we found them in Kingdom Hearts 1. So they announced this game at uh, 
Tokyo Game Show TGS 2007 along with 358 Days Over 2 and uh, Coded. But it would be a while after that that we actually got the game. So for the next three years, they did teases, they did demos, they did announcements for different things, all the while a lot of hype started to build for this. They were talking about this is just as important as the first two mainline games. This isn't going to be just some uh, side project. They really wanted to make this incredibly important. And so ultimately, Birth by Sleep was released in uh, 2010. It was released on January 9th, 2010 in Japan. And North America and the PAL region, which includes uh, Europe and Australia, had to wait all the way until September of that year. So there was an eight-month span. I remember this vividly because I was so excited for this game, and when I found out that it was releasing eight months after Japan and that I would have to stay away from spoilers as much as I could because if you know anything about me, you know that I cannot stand spoilers. I do not like spoilers. If something comes out and I haven't watched it yet or I haven't seen it yet, I want nothing to do with anyone who will potentially spoil things for me. So I had to avoid spoilers for eight months so that I could play this game fresh. And when it finally came out, I did. So that is the full background and development history of Kingdom Hearts Birth by Sleep. And I think now we will jump into the story. So the story is going to be a little bit different than uh, our previous episodes. Because one special thing about this game is that it has not one, not two, but three separate protagonists. And you get to play as all three of them. Now the way that this is set up is there is a kind of like a prologue chapter that gives you the basics of these characters, who they are... Uh, establishing the worlds and then it drops you into a character select screen and you can choose from any of the three protagonists and once you choose that person you're able to play through their adventure all the way until the end of their campaign and whether you decide to wait until you're finished with that campaign or you uh, dip out halfway through it you can start the campaigns of other characters uh, concurrently so our neighbor's dog is very excited about Birth by Sleep. So um, this story, I went back and forth on how I wanted to do it, but I decided that I am going to tell the story as you experience it in-game. So we're going to be taking it from the perspective of each of the characters one at a time, and then we'll be converging them at the very end. So with that out, out of the way, with that said, uh, again, this is going to be a little bit different presentation-wise, but I think it's the proper way because this is how, as players of the game, you experience the story. So we will go ahead and start with the story here. Our story begins ten years in the past, but in a familiar setting, Destiny Islands. We see a cloaked figure bringing a boy wrapped in a blanket to the island, telling him that his heart may be broken, but this hooded man may find some use for him down the line. We then see that this boy, who looks suspiciously like previous protagonist Roxas, somehow materializes a keyblade, and this is due to a newborn heart coming to 
into contact with his own. Years later, we jump to the Land of Departure, which is a very um, a very lively, a very almost Final Fantasy-esque looking place. Large castle in the middle of these uh, floating islands. So this is the home of Terra, Aqua, and the boy from the previous scene, Ventus. Terra, Aqua, and Ventus are Keyblade wielders, and they are Keyblade masters in training. The three are very good friends, though Terra and Aqua take on an almost uh, parent kind of relationship with Ventus. Ventus is very much the little brother of the trio, and they have to look out for him as such. Now, Terra and Aqua are going to be participating in the Mark of Mastery test to decide if they can become Keyblade Masters, like their Master Ericus and his good friend Master Xehanort. Now, this test is initially going very by the numbers, and Terra and Aqua seem to be doing well, but we see that from manipulation by Master Xehanort, that the test is tampered with and that it is geared towards um, not just revealing but almost showcasing the darkness in Terra's heart. As a consequence of this, by the end of the test, Aqua is named Master but Terra is passed up for the role. If this sounds familiar to you, it's Star Wars. It's just Star Wars. But moving on from that, um, following this, even though Terra is happy for Aqua and the fact that she was able to achieve the title of Keyblade Master, you can tell that he's a little jealous, he's a little bummed out about it. Uh, pretty quickly after this, Xehanort disappears. No trace of him, no one knows where he went, and Yen Sid informs not just Master Ericus, but also the disciples and the newly... Uh, master level aqua that certain creatures have appeared throughout all of the worlds but these aren't the heartless these are beasts called the unversed these are creatures that seem to be driven by hate and negative emotions and they have released themselves into all of the worlds and because of this all of those worlds are in danger so master ericus sends terra to go fight these unversed and bring stability back to all the worlds. Unbeknownst to him, he also wants Aqua to follow him, to keep an eye on him. Meanwhile, Ventus is confronted by a masked boy named Venetus, who goads Ventus into following Terra, basically telling him that he shouldn't have to be keep kept up here, and if you don't follow Terra, Terra's terrible things are going to happen to Terra. So Ventus follows Terra out of the land of departure. Aqua, who sees Ventus leave, is now tasked with not only keeping an eye on Terra, as well as battling and driving back the Unverse to wherever they came from, but now she also has to retrieve Ventus and bring him back home. And this is where the stories diverge. We have three separate stories, one for Terra, one for Aqua, one for Ventus. And so we will be going through each of these stories on their own, starting with our boy Terra. So Terra 
is a headstrong individual. He is a man, but he is a young man and is still trying to figure things out. He's trying to uh, wrestle with the darkness inside of him. So when he gets the opportunity to go after the unversed, he takes it as a challenge. He takes it as, this is how I'm going to prove to them that the darkness in my heart isn't going to overwhelm me. This is how I'm going to prove to them that I can be a master. So Tara leaves. Tara heads out into the worlds. And the first world that he encounters is the castle of Sleeping Beauty, where he encounters Maleficent. Now Maleficent tells Tara that the key to finding out more about the Unversed and where Master Xehanort is gone rests inside the heart of Princess Aurora. So it is with his keyblade that Tara unlocks Aurora's heart and essentially puts it into the hands of Maleficent. And this way he is manipulated into doing the villain's bidding. And this won't be the first time that this happens. As he heads out into the world, he finds himself interacting with Cinderella on the night of the ball. He is able to fight through the castle to get Cinderella to the ball safely, fighting off Unversed as he goes, but is also confronted by more Unversed that drives him out of the world. He also happens upon the Dwarf Woodlands, where he encounters the Evil Queen, along with her magic mirror. He is then sent by the Evil Queen to capture the fairest one in the land, Snow White, and bring her back to her so that she can tell Terra where Master Xehanort is gone. As you can tell, these Disney villains are using Terra and his extreme naivete to basically be their heavy, to be their muscle to get what they want. Terra ends up protecting Snow White from a monstrous unversed, and unfortunately she gets away. Upon returning to the Evil Queen and realizing that the Evil Queen was manipulating him, the Evil Queen traps him inside of the Magic Mirror where he does battle and eventually emerges victorious. Upon leaving the Dwarf Woodlands, Terra is beckoned by Master Xehanort to come to the Badlands. Upon arriving there, he finds that Xehanort is working on a method to rid all of the worlds of the unversed and he has pinpointed the source of this to be his rogue apprentice Venetus. He tells Terra that he will continue to work towards locating Venetus and that the two of them will bring him down along with the unversed. He then heads to Radiant Garden and that's where he encounters Aqua and Ventus, the three having gone on adventures up to this point, converging here at this familiar place. The three of them are able to topple a giant unversed before Terra, Aqua, and Ventus go off separately to fight other unversed in the town. Terra is then beset upon by a strange gunman named Bragg, who lures Terra into the underground sewer system where he fought shows Terra that he has captured Master Xehanort. The two do battle, and while Terra is unable to defeat Bragg initially, Master Xehanort urges Terra to release the darkness inside of him to defeat Bragg. Terra does this, and 
a tax Bragg, permanently scarring him and removing the use of his eye. Bragg escapes, and Terra is told by Master Xehanort to continue his mission to seek out Vanitas and to rid the worlds of the Unversed. He also calls Terra Master, claiming that Ericus doesn't want to call him Master because he sees the balance of light and darkness in Terra. Now, this does bring to light an interesting flaw in Master Ericus as a character, because Master Ericus sees the world in very black and white, um, uh, from a very black and white perspective. There is light, there is darkness, light is good, darkness is bad. And Xehanort tells Terra that the reason that Ericus didn't grant him the rank of Master was because he is afraid of the darkness in Terra's heart. So he goads Terra into continuing his work, into continuing to um, work with Xehanort to destroy the Unversed and to destroy Vanitas. And of course this is a man manipulation of Terra on the part of Xehanort, but I think in the back of his mind he's more focused on the idea that I am a master. I am... I have the mark of mastery. Xehanort sees in me a master. He believes in me. We're going to work on this together. Following this, um, he, Terra leaves and encounters Aqua and Ventus one more time. Ventus gives both him and Aqua passes to Disney Town, which will be his next stop. So Terra tells Ventus not to follow him because he, is, he has a lot of stuff to figure out, and he leaves. Meanwhile, we get a touch back over to Xehanort, back in the underground sewer system, who is confronted by Bragg. Bragg tells Xehanort that this wasn't in the plan, that he was he didn't tell Bragg that Xehanort, or uh, that Terra, excuse me, would hurt him, and that he is ready to kill Xehanort for deceiving him. Xehanort tells Bragg that it's all a part of the plan, that Bragg will see the fruits of this in time. Meanwhile, Terra has made his way to Disney Town and is confronted by Captain Dark, who many people, I'm sure, recognize as Pete. Uh, Pete, at this point, is pretending to be a superhero and a supervillain, and he is, terror as Captain Dark, he is terrorizing Disney Town. Uh, Chippendale... Princess Minnie and other members of the Disney Town urge Terra to help them defeat Captain Dark and run him out of the town. So Terra does this, and with the thanks from Minnie Chippendale, he leaves. Terra then finds himself at the Olympus Coliseum, where he finds a young Hercules being trained by Phil. Phil and Herc tell Terra that the games are about to begin, and that the East and West block will be facing off against each other in the finals. Terra takes on this challenge and begins to lay waste to the West block ultimately coming into contact with the winner of the East Block, which happens to be a young man with a sword and a helmet covering his head. Hades manipulates Terra throughout this tournament, telling him that 
oh, I understand the darkness in your heart, but you can do this, you can utilize the darkness. And as Terra makes his way through the tournament, Hades finds that Terra doesn't need the darkness to win. So he decides to manipulate the opponent, the young boy with the helmet covering his face. And when Terra faces this boy in the finals, he finds that the boy has been manipulated and consumed by darkness. Terra is able to defeat the boy, who, upon coming back to his senses, introduces himself as Zack. That's right, this is Zack Fair from Final Fantasy VII. And Zack promises that he will train and he will come back and he will fight Terra again, saying that Terra is a true hero and that he wishes to be just like him. Terra then leaves and finds himself aboard a giant spaceship coming into contact with Dr. Jumba Jakiba, as well as the newly created experiment 626. After fighting off another one of Jumba's experiments, Terra instills within Experiment 626 the idea of friendship before leaving, and then finds himself in Neverland, encountering Captain Hook and his first mate Smee. He initially helps Captain Hook defend his treasure against Peter Pan, but upon realizing that Peter Pan and the Lost Boys are not enemies, and that Captain Hook is the evil one in the situation, Terra helps them defeat him and run him off. Following this, Terra finds himself at Destiny Islands. Here he recognizes the Paupu fruit as something that Aqua told him about many, many years ago. But Terra is distracted from this momentary discovery by a little boy with silver hair. This boy introduces himself as Riku and claims that Terra isn't from around here telling him that he doesn't recognize him and that he couldn't possibly live on the island. Terra then reveals to Riku that there are other worlds outside of this one, and that he comes from one of them. Seeing that there is a light in Riku, and Riku wanting to protect his friends, Terra performs the Inheritance Ceremony, the Keyblade Inheritance Ceremony. A quick oath to basically give... Riku the ability to wield a Keyblade later on in life. So we now find out how Riku is able to acquire this later on. We then see Riku run off with his young friend Sora, and that's the last we see of them for now. Terra is then called back to the Badlands by Master Xehanort, who tells him that Ventus is on his way back to the Land of Departure. He tells Terra that Ventus has discovered the secret of his origins, that he and Venetus are two sides of the same coin, and that he is returning to force the truth out of Ericus. Terra is then urged by Master Xehanort to return to the Land of Departure to ensure that Ven doesn't do anything reckless. Terra then heads back to the Land of Departure and finds that Ericus is about to strike Ven down. Without taking a moment to assess the situation, Terra jumps in front of his friend and engages Ericus. He sends Ven away through a portal of light and engages Ericus in a duel. Ericus laments that he is not able to save Terra from the darkness that is slowly consuming him. And after a rage-filled duel, Terra defeats Ericus. Terra, realizing what he's done, rushes to his master's side, telling him that he's 
been manipulated, that the darkness in his heart is growing and he doesn't know what's going on. It's at that moment that Xehanort strikes Ericus down, killing him right in front of Terra. Xehanort reveals the manipulation of Terra, how he's been manipulating him this whole time, and how, in fact, he has been behind everything from the unleashing of the inversed on the worlds to teaming up with Venetus. Venetus never went rogue. The two have been working together this entire time. He then tells Terra to come to the Keyblade graveyard to settle their differences and to leave their mark on fate. It's at this moment that Xehanort destroys the Land of Departure, showcasing power that we haven't seen from anyone up to this point in the franchise. Xehanort disappears and Terra is left to mourn his master and mourn the fact that he was completely manipulated throughout every step of this journey. He then decides that he is going to refocus, he is going to get revenge on Xehanort, he is going to the Keyblade Graveyard, and he is going to redeem himself. We now wind the clock back to the beginning of our story and catch up with our second protagonist, Ventus. Ventus, upon leaving the Land of Departure, first heads to the Dwarf Woodlands, where he encounters Snow White and the Dwarves. He initially has a bit of a, how you say, bad first impression on the dwarves. And following this, leaves after being chased out of the mines by them. He then happens upon Snow White, who had just been saved by Terra. Ventus leads Snow White to a cottage near the woods, who, unbeknownst to both of them, is owned by the dwarves. So Ventus leaves Snow White in the care of the dwarves and heads on into the other worlds. In the next world, he finds himself shrunk down to the size of a mouse and encounters a mouse named Jacques. The two together whip up a dress for the lowly scullery maid Cinderella to wear to the ball. Upon battling the evil stepmother's cat Lucifer, Ventus leaves Jacques and Cinderella to the rest of their night. He then happens upon the castle of Princess Aurora and is able to free her heart while also doing battle with Maleficent. Maleficent then reveals to Ventus that it was Terra who took Aurora's heart in the first place. And while Ventus's faith in Terra is shaken, the timely arrival of Aqua reignites his belief in his friend and the two are able to drive Maleficent off for now. Ventus then heads back out into the worlds. He then happens upon the Badlands, where he is confronted by Venetus, and it's here that he is joined by a young Keyblade master in training named Mickey Mouse. The two are able to defeat Venetus for now, though Mickey's magical star shard zooms them both out of the Badlands and into an unknown place called Radiant Garden. Ventus wakes up and finds that Mickey is nowhere to be seen, so he goes further into the town to try and find him. It's here that he comes across Aqua and Terra, who are each on their own adventures as well. The three of them topple the un giant unversed, and upon defeating it, the three go their separate ways once again. It's here that Ventus, who has been not only left by Terra, but also berated by Aqua to go home, treated like a child essentially, that Ventus spends an unknown amount of time moping around Radiant Garden. And it's here that he is found by two young boys, 
around his same age named Lee and I want to say Isa. It might it might be Isa, but I'm going to say it's Isa. Um, Lee and Isa, who later on might end up becoming uh, organization members Axel and Syx, uh, are able to get Ventus out of his funk, telling him that even if his former friends don't treat him as a friend, that he has new friends, and that he is always going to make new friends. So Ventus, who has had his energy kick-started, heads back out into the world and finds himself at Disney Town. It's here that he's able to help out the duckling trios, Huey, Dewey, and Louie, fix their ice cream machine. They are then beset upon by Captain Justice, who is clearly just Pete in a new costume after having been foiled by Tara, who says that he is the hero that Disney Town needs. It's here that we're told about the Dream Festival, where the entire uh, township of Disney Town votes on whoever is, I guess, the best person. And we now understand that the reason that Pete is using all of these false identities is because he knows that no one will vote for Pete. So he is trying to use other identities to get people to vote for him. After being foiled by another Keyblade wielder, Captain Justice escapes. Ventus, then having made new friends in this Disney town, heads back out into the worlds to protect more worlds and make more friends. He then finds himself at Olympus Coliseum, where he encounters Zack and Hercules. The three quickly form a tight friendship, which is then tested by Phil telling Hercules that if Zack beats him, that he will take on Zack as his trainee, as his trainee hero instead of Hercules. The games commence as some other person is cleaning up the other division. I think we all know who that is. Uh, the finals of the regional division are Zack against Hercules, and it's here that more Unversed appear and attack the nearby town. Ventus goes to fight the Unversed, but quickly finds himself overwhelmed. It's then that Hercules joins him, telling him that regardless of if Phil trains him or not, a true hero would never leave his friends behind. And they are actually joined f right after that by Zack. We find that the three heroes work together to rid the town of the Unversed, and following this, since Hercules was the first one to leave, Zack is declared the winner and heads off to the finals. Phil then reveals to Ventus that he was never going to stop training Hercules, but that Hercules had hit a rut and needed basically a kick in the ass to continue on. The three friends then bid farewell to each other as Ventus continues on. He then finds himself in another predicament, as he is forced upon a giant alien ship where he encounters Experiment 626. The two quickly bond with Experiment 626 somehow knowing Terra's name. Ventus then helps Experiment 626 escape the ship, and as the two make their daring escape, 626 unfortunately hits the hyperdrive, setting his ship off onto an unknown planet. Ventus is then left alone and heads towards another world, Neverland. Here, Ventus quickly bonds with Peter Pan and the Lost Boys, and 
the entire Neverland adventure culminates with a one-on-one -on -one duel between Ventus and Captain Hook. Ventus is able to defeat Captain Hook and drives him off before adding to the Lost Boy's treasure with his own wooden keyblade that was gifted to him by Terra early on in their friendship. This moment is cut short, however, as the Star Shard that Ventus had used with Mickey suddenly summons him out and back to the Mysterious Tower. It's at the Mysterious Tower that Ventus encounters Donald and Goofy, both members of Mickey's Royal Guard. Apparently, Mickey is a king. Yen Sid reveals that Mickey has been training under Yen Sid to become a Keyblade Master, but left upon hearing about the Inversed and took the Star Shard. Fortunately, this Star Shard doesn't really have an instruction manual, so Mickey has been using it without knowing how it works, hopping from world to world wherever the Star Shard tends to take him. And now, Mickey is nowhere to be found. So, Yen Sid uses his abilities to guide Ventus to the Badlands, where it seems Mickey has ended up. Mickey is laying in the Badlands unconscious, apparently having lost some sort of duel with an unseen figure. It's here in the Badlands that Ventus is encountered by Master Xehanort, and Master Xehanort reveals to him his history, sort of. We find out here that Ventus was originally the apprentice of Master Xehanort, and that Master Xehanort's whole goal this entire time has been to construct the Keyblade. Now I know that sounds weird, but they refer to it as Keyblade, or Kai. They use the symbol X to essentially represent this hidden power. So for the sake of my sanity and your listening experience, I'm going to be referring to it as the X-Blade, just because that's the symbol they use and it's just gonna be easier for me to explain it that way. So the X-Blade is created when a heart of pure light and a heart of pure darkness converge when they come into contact with each other, when they battle, when they are otherwise intimately um, connected. And this is the pinnacle of power. This X-Blade is what is supposed to be the ultimate key to unlocking Kingdom Hearts. So Master Xehanort has been working towards creating the X-Blade for some time and reveals that Ventus is the light of pure heart or is the heart of pure light that is one half of the equation and reveals that the other half is Venetus. He also reveals that uh, Master Ericus has known this for quite some time and has kept this secret from him, revealing that the reason that uh, Master Ericus would never let Ventus leave his side or leave the land of departure was because of the fear that Ventus might encounter Venetus and forge the X-Blade. He then sends Ventus and Mickey away and tells Ventus to go ask his master what else he's been keeping from him. So Ventus heads back to the land of departure, seemingly with no, like, care of what happened to Mickey. But um, he heads back and encounters Ericus, who is super glad to see him home. But then Ventus reveals to Ericus what he's learned. And Ericus reveals to Ventus that he's known about it this whole time. That he and Master Xehanort had a disagreement about it once, and that that changed their friendship forever. 
Ericus then also decides that he can't let the X-Blade be forged, especially if that's Master Xehanort's uh, ultimate goal. So he decides that though it physically and emotionally hurts him, he is going to have to destroy Ventus to make sure the X-Blade doesn't or isn't created. And as he's about to strike Ventus down, Terra appears. Terra, who's been seemingly on a collision course with Ventus, Aqua, and Master Ericus, arrives and casts Ventus into a tunnel of light as he seems to engage Master Ericus. Ventus wakes up on Destiny Islands and is encountered by Venetus. Venetus then fills in the rest of the holes in Ventus's memory. Initially that, yes, Ventus was Master Xehanort's apprentice, but he didn't always have this pure heart of light that he does now. In fact, the reason that Xehanort wanted him as his apprentice was because he represented the perfect balance of both. Ventus, however, was unwilling to use the power of darkness, and after being injured in a training session, Xehanort used his Keyblade to separate Ventus's heart, essentially breaking it in half. One half of light, one half of darkness. This half of darkness that Xehanort drew out from him became Venetus. So Venetus is not just figuratively the other side of the coin when it comes to Ventus, but he is literally the other half of Ventus's heart. So we now get some context for the opening of this game, where the opening where this cloaked figure who has been revealed to be Master Xehanort brought Ventus to Destiny Island was because he is, his heart was fractured. His heart was fractured, he was comatose, and he wasn't able to uh, come out of this deep sleep. However, through the friendship that he established with Aqua and Terra, he was able to regain some sense of self and has continued on to be the Keyblade bearer that we see today. Venetus then tells Ventus that they are the light and darkness that will form the X-Blade, and that if Ventus won't fight him here, then he'll have to fight him at the Keyblade Graveyard, and reveals to him that Terra and Aqua are already on their way there, and that if he doesn't fight him there, he is going to kill Terra and Aqua. He then disappears. Ventus, having resolved to defend his friends, even if it means fighting Venetus and creating the X-Blade, dons his Keyblade armor and heads towards the Keyblade Graveyard. We begin again with Aqua, who has just recently been told to bring Ventus back to the Land of Departure. At the first world she stops at, she comes upon Cinderella, who has been locked in the broom closet, while the royal assistant to the prince interviews her wicked stepsisters and stepmother, trying to find the fair maiden who left her glass slipper at the ball. Aqua is able to help free Cinderella, and is also able to stall time enough for Cinderella to get in front of the royal guy, I guess? I don't know his actual title. But um, all's well that ends well, she's able to help Cinderella reunite with the prince. She then heads to the dwarf woodlands, where she finds that Snow White has been unfortunately seemingly killed by a poison apple from the queen. 
she heads to the queen's castle and is able to defeat the magic mirror once and for all before finding a prince heading through the woods aqua directs the prince towards snow white and he is able to revive snow white with true love's kiss she then leaves and heads to aurora's castle it's here that she encounters ventus who has just had his uh, confidence in Terra shaken to its core. Aqua reaffirms Ventus's belief in Terra, and as he leaves, she confronts Maleficent, along with Prince Philip, who is there to rescue Aurora's heart. Aqua and Prince Philip battle Maleficent in her dragon form and are able to defeat her, heading out. Maleficent then, seemingly having survived, says that gaining the hearts of the princess along with other princesses, may take some time. So we get the seeds sown for the original plot of the first Kingdom Hearts game. Following this, she heads to Radiant Garden, where she encounters a young girl being attacked by Unversed. She rescues this girl, and this girl reveals herself to be named Kairi. During the battle with the Unversed, Kairi unintentionally touches Aqua's Keyblade, doing an impromptu and, I guess, unbeknownst to Aqua, a makeshift version of the inheritance ceremony that Terra pulled with Riku, giving Kairi a claim to the Keyblade later on. Aqua then heads further into town and reunites with Terra and Ventus, who are also on their own journeys, and the three of them are able to defeat a large unversed before separating again. Terra abandons Aqua, saying that he needs to figure things out and after admonishing ventus for sticking around and telling him to go home ventus snaps back at her that she's let the title of master go to her head before leaving she's then encountered by venetus who mocks her for driving away her friends the two do battle with aqua just barely escaping with her life she then heads out back into the worlds and comes upon Disney Town, which is again being besieged upon by Captain Justice. She's able to help the townsfolk drive out Pete once and for all after the Dream Festival vote has a three-way tie, Ventus, Terra, and Aqua. Aqua then heads back out and finds herself aboard a mysterious alien spaceship where she is charged by the Chancellor of the Galactic Government to find an escaped Experiment 626. After initially receiving help from Captain Gantu, the head of security on the ship, Gantu betrays her after she spares 626 from being killed. Aqua and 626 battle Gantu until the Chancellor steps in, relieves Gantu of his duties, and once again sends experiment 626 back into captivity this is a prime example of the floating timeline throughout all three of these stories where clearly terra was the first to encounter 626 followed shortly by aqua and finally by ventus either way aqua leaves the ship and finds herself at olympus coliseum having just missed the games she eventually helps a young swordsman named Zack fight off Hades and run him out of the Colosseum before Zack makes her promise to give him a date once he's become a real hero. She then heads back out into the worlds and finds herself at Neverland, 
where she sees that the Lost Boys, led by Peter Pan, have compiled many other treasures into their treasure pile, including a familiar wooden keyblade that Terra had given to Ventus. Soon after this, she's confronted by Venetus, who steals Ventus's wooden keyblade and snaps it in half. The two duel once again, with Aqua again coming out victorious. After leaving Neverland, Aqua happens upon Destiny Islands, and is soon introduced to two young boys named Riku and Sora. Aqua initially believes that she might be able to pass her will, the inheritance ceremony, onto one of these boys, but realizes that Riku has already been passed that power from Terra. Then, in one of, I think, one of my favorite moments in the story, Aqua eloquently says, One keyblade is enough for any friendship. And she decides not to pass her inheritance ceremony on to Sora, rationalizing that she doesn't want the two of them to battle over the Keyblade and over the mastery of the Keyblade like her and Terra have. Little did she know that that was going to happen anyway. But because of this, she sends the two boys off, and seeing their close friendship, Aqua is kind of down because she doesn't know what's become of Terra. She's been hearing all these things as she moves throughout these worlds about how Terra's been helping out these villains. And so she isn't sure about what's going to happen next. After leaving Destiny Islands, she happens upon King Mickey, who is floating around in the realm between after the confrontation between uh, Ventus and Master Xehanort. Aqua takes Mickey back to the mysterious tower, and upon convening with Yen Sid, Master Yen Sid reveals to her that Master Ericus was struck down by Master Xehanort with an assist from Terra. Aqua is completely just aghast at this and tells Yen Sid that he's wrong, that, that Terra is her friend, and immediately demands to know where Terra is gone. Yen Sid tells her that Terra is headed towards the Keyblade graveyard and that something is brewing there. So Aqua immediately leaves to find Terra and get to the bottom of all this. Knowing what awaits her, Aqua heads to the Keyblade Graveyard. And here we are, the Keyblade Graveyard, where our heroes' stories converge once again after having been separate this entire adventure. The three reunite at a familiar setting, a crossroads in the Keyblade Graveyard. We find that the original secret ending to Kingdom Hearts 2 is this scene where the three Keyblade wielders reunite, having gone through so much since the last time they've seen each other. Aqua asks Terra if he was indeed the one who struck down, or helped to strike down Master Ericus, and Terra confirms it. It's then that Xehanort and Vanitas arrive, and we get the entire secret movie from Kingdom Hearts Final Mix. The battle between... The two warring sides is intense, and it is crazy. Um, quickly, all three don their Keyblade armor, and they do battle with Xehanort and Vanitas, with each of them getting separated from each other. Eventually, 
Aqua is sidelined as Terra and Ventus try to attack Master Xehanort. Master Xehanort is able to repel Terra and ultimately captures Ventus, freezing him solid and tossing him off of a high cliff. Aqua is able to catch Ventus, and the two begin to try to get Ventus out of there as Terra faces Xehanort. The two do battle as Aqua is confronted by Bragg. Aqua defeats Bragg finally, and we realize that Bragg has begun to resemble Zigbar, his future self, a little bit more with a yellow eye, an eye patch, and pointed ears. Nevertheless, Aqua is able to defeat him. The victory is short-lived as Vanitas appears and strikes Aqua down for the moment. Meanwhile, Terra is able to gain the upper hand and defeat Xehanort, but Xehanort reveals that this has been his plan the entire time. That this entire adventure has been to strengthen the darkness in Terra's heart, to make him a worthy vessel to see another Keyblade War. Xehanort then uses his Keyblade to unlock his heart and release it from his body. His heart then inhabits Terra's. Terra is now the spitting image of Xehanort, of Ansem's Heartless, of Xemnas. He is a young man, yellow eyes, tan skin, but Terra's brown hair has now been turned a ghostly white. A familiar line then leaves Terra's lips. All worlds begin in darkness, and all so end. The heart is no different. Xehanort has now taken over Terra's body, and now resembles a young Xehanort, the voice sounding very much like Ansem's Heartness from the first game. Xehanort's true plan has succeeded, finding a new vessel for his soul to continue. Xehanort then goes to leave, but is stopped. As he turns, he finds that Terra's Keyblade armor has reformed itself and now, with a lingering will, is ready to do battle with Xehanort once again. Meanwhile, Ventus is able to free himself and to defend an unconscious Aqua does battle with Venetus. Unfortunately, this causes the forming of the X-Blade. Vanitas reveals that the Unversed come from him, that they are a byproduct of his hate, his rage, his anger, and consumes Ventus in darkness as they join. Aqua wakes up to find a prone Ventus, but as she tries to reach him, he attacks her. Ventus now has the same eyes as Xehanort, as Vanitas, and we see that he is now wielding the newly formed X-Blade, though something seems a bit off with it. Aqua is joined by Mickey, who has made his way to the battlefield, and the two Keyblade Masters do battle with the possessed Ventus. Inside of Ventus's heart, we see a familiar setting, a platform topped with an ornate glass artwork depicting a sleeping Ventus. Ventus does battle here with Venetus, whose face is revealed to be that of a dark Sora from Kingdom Hearts 2. How this all connects, uh, we will get into in just a moment. But for now, Ventus and Venetus do battle for essentially the soul of Ventus and Ventus is able to come out victorious, purging himself of Venetus as well as destroying the X-Blade. Back on the outside, Aqua and Mickey are able to stall and fight Ventus enough for Ventus's 
victory to take place, destroying and shattering the incomplete X-Blade. It's here that because of the destruction of the X-Blade that an explosion of white energy envelops the entire Badlands. Back on top of the cliff, Terra's lingering will is able to defeat the new Terra Nort, as we'll refer to him for now. But not long after this, the enveloping white light envelops them as well. And after the smoke clears, the light dissipates, we find that Terra's Keyblade armor is the only one left in the Badlands. Kneeling and stabbing its Keyblade into the ground, it waits there for another Keyblade wielder to find it. And this is where we leave the Lingering Will until Sora finds him over a decade later. But for now, we catch up with Aqua and Ventus. Aqua and Ventus's Keyblade armor was able to save them from the blast, and Aqua takes Ventus's prone body back to Yen Sid along with Mickey. Yen Sid tells Aqua that Ventus's heart is now fractured, that purging Venetus from him once again has done the same um, damage to his heart that it did the first time, and that he is in a deep sleep until his heart can repair itself. Aqua then realizes that she needs to take Ventus somewhere safe so that the darkness won't find him and so that the followers of darkness won't use him to further their evil goals. She then gets the idea from Yen Sid to return to the Land of Departure. She takes Ventus back to the Land of Departure and finds that it is irreparably damaged. It's broken. Uh, the damage that Xehanort did to it is immeasurable. Though returning to the fractured castle, she finds her fallen master Ericus's keyblade. And after settling Ventus into one of the seats in the castle, she uses Master Ericus's keyblade to lock the world permanently, changing and warping the castle and the land around it until it becomes something very familiar to us. Aqua leaves Ventus in this newly white room to rest and recover, and as she exits the castle, we find that the castle and the land of departure has been turned into Castle Oblivion. That's right. The best place to put Ventus is somewhere where no one will ever find him, because no one wants to deal with all the card game stuff. Aqua then leaves and finds that darkness has infested Radiant Garden. So she heads there and finds Terranort, laying in the middle of the town square. It's then revealed to her that Xehanort has possessed Terra's body, and that his soul might be lost to the darkness forever. They do battle, and during this battle we see the Shadow Heartless Guardian appear for the first time. But we also see that there is some remnant left of Terra's heart within that body. And with his help, Aqua is able to defeat Terranort. Unfortunately, this causes him to fall into a pit of darkness with Aqua giving chase. With the threat of both of them being lost in the realm of darkness, Aqua uses her Keyblade armor to send Terra back into the realm of light and falls deeper and deeper into the realm of darkness. Back topside, Ansem the Wise, along with his research assistants, young Yenzo, Evan, and his guards, Dylan and Alias, who would later become um, Zaldin, Lexeus, Vexen, and Zexion, 
find an unconscious white-haired man in the middle of their town. As Ansem shakes him awake, he asks him his name, and the young man says, Xehanort. Meanwhile, Aqua is stranded in the realm of darkness with no way back. She vows that she will find a way to reunite with her friends and begins her journey through the realm of darkness. Also, meanwhile, Ventus's heart finds its way into a young boy, the newborn heart that initially helped him back on Destiny Island, and we find that this heart was, in fact, Sora, the young boy who opened his heart to Ventus to allow him to heal, and this is now why Sora is able to wield the Keyblade. So now we find ourselves, as we began at the beginning, a young, supposedly amnesiac Xehanort has been taken on as a scientific apprentice to Ansem the Wise, and is quickly joined by Bregg, who survived the uh, events at the Keyblade Graveyard. Bregg confirms that Xehanort is who he is and not Terra, and the two conspire to continue whatever master plan they have going forward. Meanwhile, on the inside of Terra's heart, we find that Terra's still in there, and he and Master Xehanort are still fighting for control of Terra's body, and that as much as Xehanort tries to consume his heart in darkness, Terra's friends will provide him with light. Xehanort super ominously then says, I'm a patient man. We then catch up with Aqua, who has been wandering the realm of darkness for an undetermined amount of time. Soon she is witness to a hole in the realm of darkness that seems to lead to the realm of light, but it's then that a large rush of darkness makes its way into this hole before the hole closes, potentially signaling the beginning of the first Kingdom Hearts game. Aqua is then beset upon by dark, shadowy creatures that she recognizes as not unversed, but possibly worse. She fights them off and is able to make her way through the Realm of Darkness until she happens upon Cinderella's castle, somehow consumed in the darkness. She's not sure what's happened, what's going on in the Realm of Light, but she knows something is wrong. Meanwhile, Ventus, at the heart of Castle Oblivion, is waiting for his friends to be reunited and for his heart to be whole once again. There is a secret ending at the end of the credits, where Aqua finds herself upon a familiar dark beach. This is the same beach that Riku and Sora found themselves while trapped in the Realm of Darkness at the end of Kingdom Hearts 2. But strangely, there's someone there with her. There is a cloaked man in a familiar organization cloak, and as she gets closer to him, we recognize the man as Ansem the Wise, who has somehow survived the explosion of his digital encoder back in the, in the second Kingdom Hearts game. Aqua tries to converse with him, asking him what's been going on. She doesn't know how long she's been in the Realm of Darkness, but she knows that something's going wrong topside. So at this point, Aqua has been wandering the Realm of Darkness for over 10 years. Ansem tells her that no matter what's happening, he knows that a boy with a keyblade will be there to stop the darkness from consuming everything. Aqua, thinking it might be Terra or Ven, asks if it's either of them, and Ansem says no. 
So Aqua asks for the name of this boy. And we see flashes to other characters. We see Naminé, we see Roxas, Axel, Shion, Terra, Ventus, and they all say the same name, Sora. Upon hearing this, Aqua realizing that the realm is protected by someone who she herself saw the light within, she sheds a tear and she realizes that things will be okay. Things are going to be okay. And you realize as an audience member that all of these people, Ventus, Terra, Shion, Axel, Roxas, all of these people, even Aqua and Ansem, are waiting for Sora to rescue them and are just waiting for their birth by sleep. In our final scene, we cut back to present day on Destiny Islands where we catch up with our protagonist Sora holding the bottle with the message that had been sent to them by King Mickey at the end of Kingdom Hearts 2. Riku catches up with Sora and asks him if he's made up his mind, to which Sora says that he has. That there are all of these people who are waiting for him to help them. We then realize that this letter that Mickey sent was probably letting him know of all the events that have transpired, and that this is the start of a new adventure for him, possibly his final adventure. Sora is then met by Kairi, and Sora tells her that he's sorry that he has to go, but there are so many people counting on him. Kyra says that she understands, hands him her trusty good luck charm, and says that she will see him soon. And that is the end of Birth by Sleep. Man, this uh, this is a big one. This is a long one. Again, I didn't realize it was going to be this long, but holy crap, was it a long story. Uh, it's a good story, though. It's a great story. And uh, we are, let me check here hour and five man this i think this might be the longest kingdom hearts episode i'll have to go back and check someone i'm sure will correct me but uh yeah super super good i love this game uh if you want to know what exactly was in the letter from mickey you'll have to stick around for next month with uh our coverage of kingdom hearts coded so uh yeah that's it that's it. I love this game. I think I'm going to, man, I think I'm, I'm going to make a decision here. This is my favorite game from the series so far, just purely on a story level. Uh, it's tragic. It's sad. It's exciting. You get the three different perspectives. You know where this is going to end. And uh, it's a little messed up what happens to all these people just to get us to the point that Sora is going to be our hero. But it makes me really excited for Kingdom Hearts 3 where we know that hopefully, fingers crossed, Sora is going to save all of these people who are waiting for him to save them. So uh, we're going to cover the final mix real quick because we have gone on pretty long and then we'll jump into uh, this week in comics right after that so the final mix was uh just like the previous games an extended version initially released only in japan uh this changed for the uh, 2.5 remix edition that included kingdom hearts 2 birth by sleep and then the uh the movie version of coded so this final mix extended edition introduced the critical mode uh, introduced a sticker album as well as the uh, secret movie fragmentary passage along with one two three four five new bosses uh, the vanitas remnant which kind of 
<coughs> is found in the same um, uh, Badlands area that the Lingering Will is found in uh, Kingdom Hearts 2 Final Mix. Uh, you fight Monstro, which is pretty crazy. Uh, there's also Armor of the Master, which is the Keyblade armor from uh, Master Ericus, as well as No Heart, which is the Keyblade armor of Master Xehanort, and also one of the final versions of Xemnas that you fight at the end of Kingdom Hearts 2, as well as Unknown. Now, Unknown operates a lot like Xemnas did in the first game with uh, some lightsaber weapons, but a whole bevy of other... Uh, weapons in his arsenal who is this person stay tuned to find out uh we will cover that later on down the line but yeah so that was the final mix uh birth by sleep again amazing story amazing game i loved playing through it even if it did take longer than i was expecting but i love these characters i'm excited for them to come back in uh kingdom hearts 3 i hope you enjoyed it and uh yeah if you liked kingdom hearts birth by sleep if you didn't like kingdom hearts birth by sleep what was your favorite part what was your least favorite part please let me know again twitter is uh at geeksplained pod that's at geeksplained pod or by email uh geeksplained at gmail.com now uh next month november will be or no this is november so december uh december will be uh coded Kingdom Hearts Coded, which is a Mickey Mouse story. I'm excited for that. And, uh, yeah. So, as we're chugging, chugging along, we've only got two more months. Well, two and a half, I guess. Till uh, Kingdom Hearts 3. I'm super hyped. I hope you guys are too. And we will see you uh, for This Week in Comics after the jump. Alright, welcome to this week's segment of This Week in Comics. Uh, this is the segment of the show where I tell you uh, my top five books, sometimes it's six, sometimes it's more, uh, of what I think you should be picking up at your local comic book shop, on Comixology, or wherever you get your comics. Uh, first up, I have Nightwing number 52. This is written by Fabian Nicieza. I'm sorry if I pronounced that wrong. Uh, with art by Chris Mooneyham. Uh, this is a continuation off the Rick Grayson storyline where uh, Nightwing was recently shot in the head and was uh, underwent some for uh, like mild amnesia with like a shift in personality. So let's do the synopsis. Who is Dick Grayson? That's the question haunting him after the devastating injury he suffered in Batman number 55. Now, as he continues to struggle physically and emotionally, how can he stand against the terrifying fear germ unleashed by the Scarecrow? So this is also building off of the previous issue where we saw that a cop who is growing tired of the system stumbled upon his Nightwing cave and seems to be uh, poised to use his gadgets and gear to wage war on crime while Dick, who is now calling himself Rick Grayson, kind of uh, just moves from place to place. So definitely check that out. I'm not sure exactly where it's going, but I am along for the ride regardless. Uh, next up we have Green Lantern number one, written by Grant Morrison with art by Liam Sharp. This is the debut of the new creative team on Green Lantern. Grant Morrison writing Green Lantern, I think, is going to be really interesting. Uh, yeah, we'll jump to the synopsis. 
Superstar writer Grant Morrison returns to DC alongside red-hot artist Liam Sharp to launch a new ongoing series, The Green Lantern. In this debut issue, when Earth's space cop Hal Jordan encounters an alien hiding in plain sight, it sets off a chain of events that rocks the Green Lantern Corps, and quite possibly the multiverse at large, to its very core. There's an intergalactic conspiracy afoot, as well as a traitor in the GL Corps' ranks, so strap in for more mind-bending adventures in this masterpiece in the making. So Masterpiece in the Making is big talk, but uh, if anybody can do it, it's Grant Morrison. So uh, this looks really interesting. He's talked about this being a lot closer to like a uh, police procedural. So we will see where that goes. Next up, we have Marvel Knights 20th Anniversary number one. Uh, this is a big landmark issue. This is uh, being written by Donnie Cates with art by uh, Travel Foreman. So this is kind of the uh i guess i would call this the revival of the marvel knights brand back in the 90s the marvel knights were a uh, offshoot brand that really helped that company uh, gain more prominence when its um, sales figures were down so this seems to be kind of a jump back into that realm into that world and it seems to be focusing a lot on daredevil so we'll jump into the synopsis here in celebration of the legendary imprint founded by Marvel's CCO Joe Quesada, a new crop of talent stands poised to tell a groundbreaking story across the Marvel Universe. In the cemetery, the blind man does not know who he is or why he has come to this particular grave at this particular moment. He doesn't know the burly police officer with the wild story he was approached him, or the strangely intense man who sits in the rear seat of the patrol car, his eyes flashing green. But all of that is about to change, because Matt Murdock is beginning to remember, in a colorless world without heroes, the spark of light must come from the dark. So this is seeming like almost like an alternate universe story, like Matt Murdock wakes up, not being daredevil and all these people not being who they are so i'm interested i'm interested to see what happens i'm definitely picking this one up next up we have batman number 58 written by tom king and mikhail or uh, art by mikhail janine uh this is kicking off a brand new arc in the story though continuing the overarching arc that seems to be uh, a collision course between batman and bane for the latter half of tom king's run on the character so uh, this arc seems to be focusing a lot on the Penguin, who the last time we saw was gunned down and mortally wounded by the Red Hood in his book. So we'll jump into the synopsis and try to get an idea on what's going on. The Dark Knight waddles into a turf war with the Penguin. Still reeling from the attacks on his Bat family and reputation, the Cape Crusader looks to track down the mysterious operator lurking behind the scenes in Gotham City. As the hunt rages on, Batman runs afoul of Oswald Cobblepot. But the Penguin is on Batman's side for once, and the crime boss sees dangerous things on the horizon. How can he convince the caped crusader he's on the level? So it looks like this arc is going to focus a lot on Penguin as potentially a partner to Batman. Uh, Tom King has been really kind of trying to put his stamp on Batman's entire rogues gallery, so I'm interested to see what he does with the Penguin. I really enjoy Penguin as a character, and I think the uh, 
whole almost getting killed by the Red Hood really is a uh, is really a prime. Uh, I'm trying to figure out the word. It's like a uh, it's a great opportunity for writers to tell new stories with the Penguin, having survived this experience. So I'm interested to see what this partnership holds and where the story goes. And finally, we have Spider-Geddon number three of five, uh, written by Christos Gage with art by George or Jorge Molina. Uh, this is continuing on. It looks like this is going to, at least from the cover, it looks like it's going to be cutting the uh, Spider-Verse army like down the middle almost in a civil war fashion which they really can't spare since the inheritors are now back so let's jump into the synopsis revenge of the spider-verse one superior spider is willing to do whatever it takes to defeat the inheritors will miles and his team have to stop him before he goes too far stand together or fall separately isn't that how it goes so yeah, uh, looks like Otto is up to his old shit where he's going to be, oh sorry, uh, <laughs> where he's going to be uh, throwing a wrench in the plans of everybody else, so we'll see how this goes. And that is it for this week in comics. To recap, we have uh, uh, Nightwing number 52, Batman number 58, Green Lantern number 1, Marvel Knights 20th Anniversary number 1, and Spider-Geddon number 3. Hope you enjoyed uh, this week's episode. I had a blast putting it together, getting all the notes, playing the game, and uh, we are rolling on from a very busy October, hopefully into a continuing to be busy November. I uh, just started the night before uh, filming for this independent pilot that I'm working on. I'm really excited about it. I uh, will give you guys more details as we go along. Um, yeah, I'm trying to think of what else is going on in my life. Uh, uh, just gearing up for the holidays, getting that stuff ready. Uh, October was a great month keeping me busy, but I'm excited to keep moving forward on stuff like that. I'm also uh, in the kind of the plotting stages of a pilot slash uh, short film with my awesome writing roommate. So uh, look forward for more information on that. I'm really excited about that one as well. So I guess that'll wrap it up for me. Uh, for those of you who have been asking, yes, I'm going to be uh, reviewing Daredevil Season 3. That'll be next week's episode. And following that, for week 3 of November, we will be getting our review of Castlevania Season 2. That dropped uh, right before Halloween, so... I'm super excited. Uh, it's going to be a good uh, good couple weeks of reviewing really good television. But that is next week. For now, we will go ahead and wrap it up here. Uh, stay tuned next week for that. Stay tuned next month for the next episode of the Kingdom Hearts series. Again, if you want to reach me, uh, start conversations on things you like, things you disliked. Uh, if you want to talk politics, I'm not super knowledgeable in politics, but... I love having conversations with you guys. Uh, again, feel free to send me emails at geeksplained at gmail.com or uh, tweet at me on Twitter and give us a follow at geeksplainedpod. That's at geeksplainedpod. And for Geeksplained, this is Eric Azana. Thank you so much for listening, and we will see you next time.